0: Welcome to Books and Nachos, a podcast for those of us who find excitement in the pages of a good book. At booksandnachos.com, you can find over 100 reviews, from fiction to nonfiction, graphic novels and more. There's also links to our forums, our Facebook and Twitter pages, and information about our Podbean crowdfunding campaigns. At booksandnachos.com, we're here to find you something great to read.
1: Welcome, listeners, to Books and Nachos. This is your co-host, Jake the Snake.
2: And this is Jason.
1: And here we are for the next six weeks or so. We're going to be escaping now playing, escaping boredom, but not escaping the escape from New York. We're all about that John Carpenter classic 80s action film talking about novels and comics and all of that we'll run down what we're going to cover but first of all jason why don't you introduce yourself because you're behind the scenes guy i think you've shown up once for halloween 2018 you did a little guest segment but i don't know if our listeners really know who you are yeah and when you said my name jacob if we were real real quiet you could kind of hear the listeners
2: go who like jamon Hansu and Honsu in guardians of the galaxy But yeah, I've been backstage and now playing podcasts since 2014. Listeners who know me have probably interacted with me on Facebook, and I've managed to sneak into a couple of shows. One is something in my wheelhouse, like Halloween 2018 that you mentioned. If we ever get around to doing a Beverly Hills Cop or Mannequin retrospective, I'll ask Arnie if I can get in on those.
1: If Arnie's in charge, we'll be doing those at some point.
2: Yeah, and I got a lot of thoughts about that mannequin, too. But first, we're here to talk about Escape
1: from New York. And I know you kind of initiated this. Like, I'm a fan of the movies. I haven't seen them in probably at least a decade, but I'm a fan. And as of this recording, I haven't rewatched them yet. I haven't recorded those now playing podcasts. But I think you came to Arnie and you're like, look, there's these comics. There's this novelization I found. Let's do some books and nachos. Why were you so excited to talk about this?
2: Well, Over in Now Plane, we're fans of John Carpenter, or at least we love talking about his movies. And he did write the foreword for the Now Plane book. So we've covered a film from his resume once a year, every two years on Now Plane. And to me, when we cover a John Carpenter movie, that's an event. And for listeners who don't know or haven't figured it out yet, we are going to be reviewing Escape from New York and Escape from L.A. on Now Plane podcast this year. Those are the only two Snake Plissken films, but like all franchises, there's an expanded universe. This one's on the page. There's a movie novelization, some comics from the 90s, the early 2000s, and then a 16-issue series published by Boom Studios starting in 2014.
1: Yeah, they got four volumes that we're going to discuss, Escape from Florida, Escape from Siberia, Escape to New York, and Escape from Cleveland. And then probably the most bizarre one, they did a Big Trouble in Little China, Escape from New York crossover where Jack Burton meets Snake Plissken. Which, how would you even conceive that happening? There's magic. It's Big Trouble in Little China. Magic's involved. It's got to be. I haven't read it yet. I don't know. If there is such a thing as the Freddy versus Jason versus Ash <laughs>
2: comic book, co starring the Dream Warriors and any, any other little character from those films, then yes.
1: They got to do the full Kurt Russell, John Carpenter universe. His character from The Things got to show up. <laughs> They could bring in Elvis from the TV movie that John Carpenter and Kurt
2: Russell did. It would be hilarious. But yeah, that's what we're going to be doing for the next six weeks, talking Snake Bliskin in print. So I'll just put the first question out there, Jacob. Are you a fan of movie novelizations? And when you read them, what are you looking for?
1: With a novelization, and that's what we're discussing. This was not a novel before it was adapted into Escape from New York from John Carpenter. I think novelizations are a little bit different. And, you know, I used to read them more as a kid. I remember reading that Goonies one. I'm like, whoa, there's an octopus in this story. And they have all these adventures that didn't show up on the page. And then I remember reading the comic book adaptation for Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey. If that third film ever comes out after this whole pandemic thing, maybe I'll get to discuss that more. But I'm like, whoa, what are these extra scenes here? Before, like, DVDs, you know, as a kid, we didn't have DVDs with bonus features and deleted scenes. It was kind of a cool way to, like, see that movie expanded and get these little additional stories and scenes and because it is a novelization, usually you could get into the characters heads a bit more and explore their motivations more. Because movies are a visual medium, it's just tougher to do without having someone just narrate through the whole film. So, that was always my appeal as a kid for novelizations. Again, you get those extra scenes, you You get more motivation. Nowadays, I kind of just like let the movie speak for itself. Unless 2001, I watched that movie. I'm like, I got to read that book. And yeah, that was written as a novel. The writer worked it out as a novel before he did the screenplay. So I kind of consider that a novelization. But when I saw Prometheus, I'm like, whoa, I didn't understand what was going in that movie. Is it because it's got bad logic or I just didn't get it? Is there a novelization? I want to read that. And that's why I would turn to novelizations back in the day is just to expand that movie experience a bit more.
2: And I was the same way, and I don't read as many as I did when I was a kid. For me, most of the time, I'd get one after I'd seen the movie in theater, so I had something to tide me over before it came out on video. You remember the home video window used to be much, much longer. And like you say, there was always more on the page than on the screen. And when I was a kid, I didn't realize that these were deleted scenes, so it was always really cool when there'd be something new in the book that wasn't in the movie. Then there are the books that are huge departures, like Jaws of Revenge. If you've ever listened to that episode of Books and Nachos, Stuart explains how the story in the book is completely disconnected from the film. I had that book, and I encourage everyone to re-listen to that episode if you're a Jaws fan. As for Escape from New York, once you get past the opening, which is very different, this book really follows what's on the screen.
1: Yeah, I, when I was reading this again, I haven't seen that movie in about a decade, and I, I remember a lot of the basic points. Here's the thing. Again, this could change once I would re-watch the movies for now playing, but I'm more of an Escape from L.A. fan than New York. I'll discuss those reasons on that show. So I was interested to come to this one because this is a film that, look, here's the problem with John Carpenter. He never gets the budget that he needs for his movies. That was part of my problem with Escape from New York. I just wish there was more money for it to be as cool as I really want it to be and as cool as Snake Pliskin is so. I was excited to read this novelization. There's definitely scenes right off the bat. I mean, we'll get into it, but it's got stuff that's not in that movie. And you, I'm gonna learn all about Snake Pliskin's eye. I was excited about that because I don't remember learning about his bad eye in the movie. Yes, the
2: eye. The movie doesn't tell you why Snake wears an eye patch, but you find out in the novelization, and you find out early. You also find out more about the state of the country, the conditions of the world. This is stuff that Carpenter probably didn't have the money to show on screen, but it's here. In in the book and the book itself was published in july 1981 the same month that the movie was released yeah how did you find it you sent me a pdf did you scan your personal copy no <laughs> no you could you could buy this via amazon through a third-party seller for 90 bucks but i found a website and this is a great website that i recommend to anybody who's not a listening. torrent no. site
1: not uh, this no. is a legal site
2: yeah. It's called the Escape from New York and LA Page, and it has just the most comprehensive collection of material that I've been able to find online for these two movies: press material, memorabilia, interviews, and the novelization itself that you can download as a PDF. That's how I got it.
1: And I guess before we start really getting into the novelization, I we talk a little bit about the author, Mike McQuay, I believe it's pronounced. And I don't I don't know who this is. I did read the little blurb in the back of the book saying he loves be movies and I could tell like I like this writing in this book I, I'd be interested in reading more but do you know much about this author? Yeah, I did some research, and Mike McQuay—he
2: wrote more than forty novels. He won the Philip K. Dick Award for a science fiction novel he did called Memories. Passed away in nineteen ninety-five, but in an interview he did the year before, he talked about writing the Escape from New York novelization. He said he got the job because he wrote some futuristic detective stories. He described them as cyberpunk. He said the term hadn't been coined at the time, but there's definitely cyberpunk elements in Escape from New York, in the movies and in the novelization. You, you'd agree?
1: Oh, definitely. I mean that. That was part of the appeal like being a kid in the 80s anything with punks I thought was awesome because they were so scary and so that whole cyberpunk subgenre of science fiction where just these dirty futures and yeah I that was something that I was always drawn to.
2: He got this book while they were still filming the picture so he was writing and he was working off an old script there are not a lot of differences in much of the book and the way that it comes off on screen. And the biggest differences I would say, and you probably agree, are in the beginning. Yeah,
1: I I feel like it's going to take a long time, about 70 pages, I think, to get to New York, which my memory of the film is you pretty much start off in New York. But here, you know, one of the things is and and I guess that's the appeal of Snake Plissken. That's the Kurt Russell character. That's our protagonist here. In the films, just everyone knows who he is. It kind of whispers. People either think he's a badass or they want him dead because he's so dangerous and so right off this book kicks off with this big heist we're going to find out why he's in prison I don't think we find that out in the movie it's just like oh here's this prisoner and let's make a deal with him
2: right Snake is caught after he robs the Federal Reserve in Colorado this was the original opening for the movie and it was filmed it's a deleted scene you can watch it on YouTube it's about seven minutes long but it's all here in the book Snake goes in there he robs a joint he goes to meet up with his friend Taylor and McQuaid does an excellent job setting the scene and setting up Snake as the protagonist I'll just read a quote from the book This is opening the book here. Oh, I love this opening. He was a cat. He was an iron bar fist load and a hard right hand. He was rough like a chisel and relentless as a jackhammer. He was Snake Pliskin, and he was running for all he was worth.
1: I love McQuay's prose. It's so hard-boiled, over-the-top B movie. I watch a lot of movies. I read comic books, but when I go to read a book, I usually pick nonfiction or, you know, I go with just more classics. I don't read a lot of pulpy novels. But man, I again that that piece of prose, yeah. Right from the opening, I'm into this book. Oh, this is hardcore pulp.
2: I mean, it, it's coming off the page. It's coming out of my desktop. One more. This is from the very first page. His bad eye throbbed under its black shiny patch shooting tentacles of pain back through his head, inflaming his brain straight down through his spinal column. But that was okay. The pain was always there, reminding him, pulling his still youthful face into a tight-lipped grimace that made most people leave him alone. And Snake Plissken liked that just fine.
1: It's so good. And for listeners that might not be familiar with Snake Plissken, he he's got this eye patch, and I do love how the eye—it's kind of like a mood ring. You could tell what's going on with Snake Plissken depending on the description of his eye. If it's throbbing, if it's really painful, and then at the end when that pain goes away, it's just a nice little device for this character.
2: Then descriptive is the best word. Everything here is described. If Snake is walking on the floor, he will describe the planks of the floor from the sound that they make, the color that they are, the condition that they're in. You will you will get that feeling, that world is described to you in every little detail throughout the book, which I should mention, Jacob mentions that you take 70 pages to get to New York. This is a 181-page book.
1: Yeah, it's almost half the book just to get to New York.
2: That is a total pulp novel. You know, those were always designed to be very short. You get right into
1: it, and, and it breezes and one of the other things that stood out again you could correct me if my memory isn't right but when it's laying out the state of the world and the state of America in this novelization you know in the movie it's kind of like just everyone's crazy they're just prisoners thrown on this island in Manhattan where they're all trapped that's the conceit is there's this island we throw prisoners there we've mined the bridges we've built this wall around Manhattan so no one can escape here though we get a lot more into this universe it's not just prisoners there there's this whole thing where there's it's World War III basically going on but no one wants to use their nukes so that everyone's just using gas and this gas is just turning everyone crazy and everyone's losing their mind
2: right the, the whole country has been gassed when they start to describe what happened to snake's eye that's what they say happened to his eye he got gas in his eye is that how it works
1: I mean, it's future gas, who knows? I don't know what chemical warfare will be like in 1997 or whenever this dark future takes place.
2: Yeah, this nerve gas has infected the country and the western states like California, Oregon, whatnot. They are abandoned. And McQuay writes, quote, nobody in his right mind went west. Nobody but crazy men and outlaws. So the early chapters show you how Snake is captured. He loses his friend Taylor in the firefight. He's taken into custody by the United States police force, which in the novel, they're called black bellies. They're not referred to that in the film, but their black bellies are basically the stormtroopers for the government who are cleansing the country of crime, sending all the criminals to New York City.
1: It should be said, like the, the way this police force is described, this is basically all the vets that came home from this war with Russia, gone crazy with gas, and they're like, ah, let's just make them police and they can just round up all the criminals. So, like, here's the thing this book, very critical of the US, that Snake Pliskin, that's his character, hates the country. And what I thought was eye opening was that Carpenter was inspired partly for this story out of Watergate and just this general mood that our country is so corrupt now that even the president has. to resign and I feel that throughout like one of the big things with Snake that you'll find out with his backstory is this battle of Leningrad and I didn't quite maybe you could clarify I didn't quite understand what happened but it basically there's this big war in Russia Snake led this this whole air glider force in and that's when he got the gas in his eye but it was basically to rescue someone that got caught on purpose and and, and was a whole sham and and that's what kind of turned him bitter from my understanding. The Leningrad ruse
2: is how it's described in the book Snake and his squad their order to rescue an allied intelligence officer who has been captured by the Russians. McQuay writes, quote, neither Snake nor Taylor thought much of the plan. It sounded too much like suicide, but duty was duty. And this is where he loses his eye. Quote, sometime during the fighting, a frag cracked Pliskin's left goggle, and the nerve gas went to work on his eye. Now, it turns out the intelligence officer he was supposed to rescue was a corporal who let himself be captured in order to give false information to the Russians, and Pliskin's squad had been sent in just to lend the whole thing of air of authenticity. To make matters worse, it didn't work. The man hadn't fooled them for a minute. So after that passage, McQuay writes that Pliskin's life began to change at that exact instant. You know, he's disillusioned. He feels betrayed, rightly so. The war, by the way, is where Snake gets his nickname because he, quote, has a knack for slithering out of trouble. It does not go much deeper than that.
1: Nope. I, I don't think you need to. I don't know. It, it, again, this guy loves B-movies, and this writing totally works on that B-movie level. If you go back to our review of Carpenter's Assault on Precinct 3, 30- which is one of my it's not one of Carpenter's best but it's one of my favorites of his and I, I I talk about like he he's able to ride that line of just shorthand you have this Napoleon character I'll tell you my name when I'm about to die and like that tells you so much about that character and you never get deep into the characterization but in a pulpy story that works for me and so yeah just he slithers out of things It's addressing a lot of problems that I remember having from that movie that I just wanted to know. Not a whole bunch about Snake. We're going to learn a whole bunch about Snake, I think, going through all these comics and everything. And and we'll see if we get that uh, weariness as they have to keep evolving his backstory and and all that. But from this novelization, like, I I thought this struck a perfect balance. I really understand who this character is, why he's so disillusioned, and the state of America. It's not just crazy prisoners. I, I don't know. I like how this expands and explains everything that they just couldn't get into that movie you
2: so these first chapters tell us a little bit more about Snake's backstory, and then we're introduced to Bob Houck. That's a Lee Van Cleef character in Escape from New York. We learn much more about this character on the page than in the picture. He's in charge of the Manhattan Island prison. McQuay writes, quote, They used to call him Big Bob when he was in the service, but that was a long time ago, back where there'd been a spark within him. And it continues, He had once been a leader of men, a lover of people, and a believer in ideals. This isn't in the film, but in the book we find out that he fought in Leningrad with Snake. They never met, but how quote, wanted to meet Pliskin just once, wanted to tell him that he understood.
1: He seems kind of sympathetic to me in this novelization. I don't remember that in the film. Again, the, the film is all about Snake Pliskin just hating everyone. That that is my memory of it here. Look. Plissken still hates Hauk, but Hauk, when you learn about his story and this relationship, he's like, it it gives me more sympathy towards him. Hauk's always trying to build that relationship with Plissken throughout this novelization. Plissken's never going to have any of it, though. He he just doesn't have relationships. But this is where we get into the main conceit of the the plot. Basically, the President of the United States, he's on his way to a summit with China and Russia. They're trying to work out some peace deal, supposedly, but the American President has an audio cassette tape, and I never understood this from the movie, and I feel like McQuay doesn't understand it either, so he's going to try to brush over, it, but he has a cassette tape that's going to reveal that the Americans have thermonuclear weapons. They they won't have fallout, but they could still destroy everything, so they won't have to just rely on gas, and this is how the president plans on getting his way by revealing this. I don't know why he needs the cassette tape. I feel like scientists would have this information, but he's got a cassette tape, but his plane gets ambushed, Air Force One, it crashes in New York, and Plisk. Plissken is offered a deal to, he's got 23 hours, I like that it's not 24, 23 hours to save the president and get him out of New York, return him with the tape, and if Pliskin tries to do anything to escape without getting the president, they they inject like little nanobots or something into his neck that will blow up his arteries within that 23 hours.
2: And we learn a lot more about the president in this book than we do in the movie. If you recall the picture, you're introduced to Donald Pleasance as president, and all he's referred to in the whole film is president. Here on the page, he actually gets a name. The president used to have nicknames when he was in Congress. They called him Mousy or Straddler, but his name is President John Harker. And on the page, he's shown to be kind of a son of a bitch. He's a vindictive character. After he was elected president, he cut off water projects to a state because the senator of that state used to mock him. And then the senator mysteriously disappeared, implying that he was killed. And this president, he's the one who is controlling the United States police force, which in the novel that's described as they have cleansed the cities of crime. Trial have gone out with the
1: United States police force.
2: And it is dystopian. It it kind of sounds like the police force are the judges from Judge Dredd, but they are not heroes. It,
1: it even says they're judge, jury, and executioner at one point. Yeah, they, but but they're not good guys. They're stormtroopers. Yeah, no, this isn't America you do not want to be a part of. And I could get why Snake is so disillusioned. And again, I don't think that is a crazy idea. A vet that's disillusioned with their country coming out of the 1970s? Like, yeah, Watergate? Yeah, it makes sense for the time it was written and I really think it captures that vibe.
2: And there's one more big difference, a
1: big difference between the book and the movie and it
2: comes right before Snake takes off for New York. Hauk pulls him aside. We learn a little bit more about Hauk. We learn that he has a son named Jerry who is inside the prison somewhere. He wants Snake to find him. Now, I don't know how you find one guy in a city of three million crazy criminals, but you can identify Jerry by the tattoo Hauk across his fingers. H-A-U-K tattooed across his fingers. He pulls Snake aside. He says, would you keep an eye out for him. By the way, McQuay's language, there are a lot of keeping an eye out kind of lines in there. And that's it. He sends Snake on his way. And this is where the book kind of stops with the new elements and we really just get right into the plot of the movie. And it takes off, it follows the script very, very closely with just minor, minor differences.
1: Yeah, and so we'll get right into it. Snake flies in, lands on the World Trade Center. No elevators. You gotta walk down. I think that's gonna take 23 hours for me at least to walk down all those stairs, but we are into the film at this point, and I guess I'll give a little preview of my thoughts of the film, is that it's Escape from New York. A few months back, we did a hot mic event, talking about Jason Takes Manhattan, and you name something after a city or a state, I kind of wanted the action to take place around those cultural stereotypes of that state or that city, that location, and I, I feel like we get a little bit here, like he gets out and he finds this weird band playing in this theater with all these old men, you gotta pay, like, food to get in, and that kind of stuff is neat, and where I felt like the movie, again, it's got so little money, it, it just needs more where it feels sparse, because of McQuay's writing here, I am for fully engaged and even though it's not hitting all those sweet spots where I I want Plissken commenting on New York stuff like I'm I'm into it despite that because uh, again of this writing
2: and McQuaid does a very good job of describing the characters the snake will meet they don't get a lot of dialogue but the gangs that are filling up New York in the film you don't get a lot of description of the gangs but here they they actually get names on the page, and, and I, I wrote them down. You get the Gypsies, they're part of the Duke of New York's gang. You get the Africs, the Lowriders. These
1: are gangs really divided on racial lines when you get into the descriptions of them. It's not the most PC by 2020 standards.
2: Yeah, and I guess we should note that the, the language, obviously, was written in 1981. It would be a little more sensitive if they were writing the book now. There's a gang, I'll tell you, it's called the Chinkas. There are the Dollies, the Octos, and the ones that live under the street, the Crazies. I think they do get named in the film.
1: Some of these are criminals. Some of them are crazy people that just got walled into New York because they were too crazy and they didn't want to let them out. But yeah, boy. Do I wish this was Warriors meet Snake Pliskin?
2: That's what I was thinking. I kept thinking Warriors. You know, if Snake had to go through and battle a different gang, every other chapter kind of thing. But the book sticks really closely. Very close to the movie, yeah. And I, I actually watched the movie a day after finishing the book. And granted, it only took me a day or two. And not long sittings to finish this book. And the dialogue perfectly matches. You don't get a lot more of Snake talking once he gets into what I would call the movie part of the book.
1: Yeah, and I, I don't want to get into every detail if someone wants to read this, but yeah, it basically follows that movie. The main antagonist is the Duke of New York. This, I guess, this warlord who everyone kind of fears, who runs everything, and because this follows the movie so closely, Snake finds out where the president is pretty quick in this. And because we don't even get to New York till about halfway through the book, again, it, it feels like it moves very fast. And just
2: like in the movie, every character that he meets says the same exact thing, I thought you were dead.
1: Yeah, I do think that's fun that everyone knows who Snake Plissken is even if you're a crazy deranged psychopath in a New York City prison you know who Snake is it's like may the force be with you or I got a bad feeling about this from Star Wars it's just you gotta say it
2: Uh, it, it, part of me feels it becomes a crutch but we can talk about that with some of the later publications
1: I'll I'll say this. Everyone knowing who Snake Plissken is, he's even going to meet, again, some of his his old buddies here, Brain, and he's going to meet Hawk's son, kind of. Hawk's son ends up just being a deranged crazy guy who he ends up killing, but realizes that was his son because he has Hawk tattooed on his knuckles. But yeah, you're, you're going to get Snake running around, shooting, plotting. He's eventually going to find the president. Again, I don't want to spoil everything. It follows closely with the movie, so if you've seen the movie, you know where this goes. But he's got to rescue the president from Duke, get across this bridge full of mines, and he's got the ticking clock going the whole time. And that's one thing I do like about the chapter headings. You'll get a chapter heading, and then you'll get this countdown, so you know how much time he has left before these little things in his veins explode and kill him. He
2: obtains the tape that Hulk wanted in the same manner that he does in the, the film they make it across the bridge and he's lifted to safety in the end and now we're getting close to the end of the movie and the book with the president saved there's just a couple of loose ends to wrap up snake gives the president the tape or at least what we think is the tape and then he goes back to Hauk, who asks about his son and snake lies he says he's happy where he is he doesn't need anything doesn't need anything Except maybe a couple of new fingers
1: yeah, I don't remember the sun plot in the film. As far as the book goes, it did feel weird because he kills Hauk's son so early once he gets to New York. You know, Chock Full of Nuts is like the second thing he does in New York. So I'm like, the whole time I'm thinking about, well, is this son going to come back? Is he ever going to mention this again? And yeah, it comes back for like a sense. I don't know. It shows that Pliskin is a little sympathetic, at least towards Houck at the end, that he's going to spear his feelings here. I understand why he's sparing his feelings. I think if you're going to write a character like
2: this who is missing his son, you usually make the son somebody in the story they they decide to go this route where he's just a random crazy and they excise the son subplot completely from the picture whereas if it had brought into the picture you would have expected somebody like the Duke's right hand
1: man to be Hauk's son exactly that's, that's what I was expecting once I found out Hauk had his son in Manhattan it should have been and probably would have been if the movie had been made by
2: anybody but John Carpenter he can be unpredictable and characters are introduced and killed so randomly in Escape from New York and Escape from L.A. McQuay was working off an old script, so Carpenter plotted it this way to have the son be a nobody. But the entire subplot is only in
1: the book. Once that's wrapped up, we go back to the old switcheroo with the tape. And do you know why they have to have, I guess, the recipe for thermonuclear warheads on a tape? Like, that, that's got to be written down somewhere else. This isn't the only source. And, on a cassette tape. You could use those for data back in the day. They might still do it. Apparently, what's on the tape is a discussion of a bomb called the
2: Super Flash, is the way that it's described on the page. Not described that way in the film. They gloss over it in the film with, know anything about nuclear fusion, Snake? And he's like, no. And then they just leave it at that. It's like, well, then the audience doesn't need to know either. But for us, the tape is going to the Hartford Summit it'll relay information on the bomb to Russia and China and the president's intent is to give the Russians and the Chinese 24 hours to surrender before he unleashes this holocaust on them
1: yeah I, I, again reading a novel is different than watching a film when you, when I read a novel I'm willing to let it go and, and just explore subplots more because that's just again that's the medium that's how it works film you typically want it a little bit tighter than that but I, what I do love about the novel again because you can't really you could have snake narrating I, I typically don't like that in a a movie when you have narration you got to do it just right but i do like you know in a novel you could get into their head and the fact that as he's walking away again that bad eye is his mood ring and for the first time it's not hurting last line of the book the bad eye didn't hurt anymore and then
2: snake walks off into what we think is well he walks off into the night but he's going to go on to other adventures
1: yeah and so before we talk about a couple of those adventures in comic book form what do you think of this novelization?
2: Well, obviously, I'm a fan of Carpenter's film, otherwise it wouldn't be here. But like you said, Jacob, on the screen, you got to keep it tight. So I'm really happy to see McQuay open up the world here on the page. And the book is such a breeze. Like we said, 181 pages. And the first half is all new, all the backstory and the character development that leads into the events of the film. Think of it as the Escape from New York director's cut, all the stuff that didn't make it into the movie. And it's canon. It comes from the original creators. It sets up Snake Plissken to be the anti-hero of this dystopian, authoritarian future. And the best part, you don't need to pay 90 bucks for it. You can find it online and read it for free.
1: And as far as my feelings for this book, again, I'll I'll talk more about how I feel about the movie. And I got criticisms for the movie. That doesn't mean I don't like it. But definitely, I wish there was more money. I, I wish there was a little bit more action that was related to New York. And does this book fix that well? You don't have budget concerns in a novelization. You you can make the action as big, the explosions as big as you want because you got no budgetary concerns. You got no producers you're trying to please. You just got to get that manuscript out on time to the publisher. That's about it. So this book doesn't really address those criticisms I I remember having of the film because it's still going to follow those plot points more or less once you get into New York, but McQuay's writing it's so hard-boiled and pulpy and b-movie i was engaged the whole time i like how it expanded on on Pliskin. you get that adventure of him robbing the reserve i feel like that was something always hinted at at the movies and there is a deleted scene carpenter actually did film that so i'm excited to go back and watch that but the fact that you get this expansion of Pliskin's character a little bit yeah you're not going to find out what he was like as a child and all that but i think you find out enough that his disillusionment with the united states because of that battle in in Leningrad that those kind of details I really appreciate getting the fact that everyone is just crazy because of this chemical warfare going on the entire time like I like those little details they really helped me figure some things out that weren't quite clear in the movie so if you're a fan of the film Escape from New York I, I would definitely recommend this and even if you have some criticisms like the ones I voice I'd recommend this because it's just a fun read even though yeah it, you're not going to see Plissken, I, I don't know whatever big Broadway play was going on at the time see some weird parody of that by gang members and junkies and and people crazy on gas you're not going to get that kind of expansion but be prose is just so fun to read that it kept me engaged the whole time even though i knew once you got to new york it plays out the same way as the movie so there wasn't a whole lot of surprises i was still into McQuay's writing
2: even though it goes fast you can absorb
1: it all but it's great that it goes fast again one two days done But we're not done with this episode yet. we got a couple of comics we're going to talk about and then we'll return in future episodes talking about the Boom Studios series, those five graphic novels we talked about at the beginning of this episode. But first off, by Marvel Comics published in, well, the publishing date is January 97, which means it came out probably three months before that. But the Adventures of Snake Plissken, this is a 36 page one-off.
2: It's just a quick one-shot that follows Snake on a job. He's trying to
1: get paid. Yeah, and talking about these creators, I looked them up. Len Kaminsky, who's the writer, and Rod Wiggingham, who does the pencils here. Not names that stuck out to me. I really like this art style. I like the writing here. They did do a lot of Marvel work. These look like they were real working artists and writers just in the comic community back then. Uh, Not a lot of stuff I was familiar with, like big storylines that jumped out at me. But again, my my sweet spot for sci-fi, I do like that cyberpunk, dystopian future where it's really satire on kind of modern society, and I really feel Feel like this one shot, you know, if you've read the Judge Dread comics or movies like Robocop, it really fits into that kind of satirical storytelling. Like you start off in a smoke easy instead of a speakeasy because like smoking is illegal. My memory of the movies is that it's more about this moralistic president that takes over. So the fact that smoking is illegal, uh, that kind of stuff's a lot of fun for me
2: snakes again on the run from the united states police force and this time they they bring out a robocop ripoff and i mean a ripoff they call it the future of law
1: enforcement that that's a violation of robocop's prime directives yes (laughs) i mean there were robocop comics i uh, i think they were all dark horse though i don't know if marvel ever had the license but yeah i wrote down they did for a short time Okay, basically this one shot is Snake versus RoboCop slash Terminator. Like, that's what this boils down to. Is the United States Police Force has this robot. It's got this AI and they filled it like with all the knowledge of Snake. And so it comes after Snake after he tries to pull off what? Some deal to sell chemicals.
2: Yeah, it's called the Autonomous Tracking and Combat System, ATAX for short, which I believe is also ripped off from a G.I. Joe character that I had. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, that those 80s toys love those crazy acronyms, and, and again, maybe that's why I enjoy this kind of stuff, because I grew up playing with those toys, and it's hitting all the sweet spots for me, it, it's not a deep comic, it's just one little fun, pulpy side adventure of Snake Pliskin. I mean, it's called The Adventures, this is really just an adventure, but yeah, Snake is gonna fight this terminator who basically becomes terminator snake Pliskin because it's it's filled with his ai and so it comes to understand the world as snake does and it becomes disillusioned and i love that seems to happen around the time when snake is fighting it and he takes out this robot's eye so it's only got one eye like snake he impales the robot with a long pipe
2: and takes out the eye, so now it looks like him. And in the end, he ends up killing the robot, telling him he doesn't need the competition. I'm going to post the link. After this Books and Nachos is uh, online, folks, I'm going to post a link so that you can find all these PDFs and you can download them and read them yourself. And I think it's take it or leave it, Snake. You want a little bit more, you can read it. It I mean, it's 36
1: pages with advertisements. I was done with this thing in like five minutes. And then one more comic that we'll talk about today, John Carpenter Snake Plissken Chronicles. And this is a four-issue series, but it's all one story, published by CrossGen and Hurricane Entertainment in 2003. Yeah, and had you ever heard of those companies? Had you ever read anything? CrossGen sounded familiar. I looked them up. There's always these small publishers that have a little rise, and they're successful for a few years. And then the comic book industry is very tough to succeed in, especially nowadays. But I found out that they did have their little little... little superhero universes that they built up with CrossGen and Hurricane Entertainment and then they got bought by Marvel and I guess Marvel has tried to do some stuff with those characters but they were never that successful. Not any characters I had heard of even though, you know, I've read comic books for decades. I just, yeah, never got into their stuff but they were around for a few years. The writer here, William O'Neill and artist Tone or Tony, I'm not sure, it's T-O-N-E, Rodriguez, they didn't work for CrossGen and it didn't seem like they had big careers. I hadn't heard of them. I was kind of dreading this one when you said, here's this other one, because I'm like, oh, some off-brand comic studio, and, and looking at the art, it's not bad, it's not the greatest, but here's the thing, I liked this story, we'll get into it, but it didn't need to be four issues, it could have been 36 pages like that Marvel, like, this came out again in 2003, this is around the time where we started getting decompressed comics, people wanted to make comics more cinematic, and, you know, if you read 60s Fantastic Four by Stan Lee and Jack Kirby... It was crazy. They only had like 17 pages of story because they'd have so many, like half the comic would be ads, but you get the whole Galactus story like in one comic in 17 pages and it's amazing and every panel is is moving that story forward, but then as, hey, let's make these more cinematic and we're writing for the trade paperback where we'll put five issues together. So now we'll expand a story to five issues and then put it together as a graphic novel to put out. It just felt like instead of having a panel of, of say, Wolverine upstairs and he's like, oh, I hear a noise. And then the next panel is him, like, fighting people downstairs. In a decompressed comic, you know, you have Wolverine and he's standing there. And then the next panel, like, you see him, like, kind of turn his head. And then the next panel... Did I hear something? Next panel opens the door. Next panel walks down a couple steps. Next panel, a few more. Like, it takes a really long time. And that can work if the writers and artists are skilled enough. Like Mike McNola, who does Hellboy, I feel every once in a while, he'll just have these weird panels that don't really serve the story, but they help build the mood of like just some weird bird or something hearing a weird noise and reacting to it. Did I need that? No, but because that's a kind of a horror comic, it, it does build that suspense. So it's not always a bad thing. But mm, typically I'm going to say it's a bad thing. Like I I want the meat and potatoes. I I don't want uh, the gravy and and the garnish that you're never going to eat and all that. And so that's probably my biggest criticism for this story is that I could have compressed this down to 36 pages, maybe two issues. I mean, 36 pages is more or less two issues, but I felt like you're going to get a lot of action scenes, which are fun, but it just elongates this story. If I had to pay $3 an issue back in the day, I'd be kind of upset.
2: You think that that's the way that they're kind of approaching it? Are they looking at it from the business model of, we're going to publish a graphic novel, so we need to stretch the story into six books, six comics, or four issues?
1: Oh, yeah. I definitely think that uh, the model for especially Marvel, DC, Dark Horse, like any major comic publisher, because that's how... You don't have comics at the newsstand anymore. You can't go into your grocery store unless it's an Archie Comics. That's, that's the only comic I think you can still get in grocery stores, and they sell millions of comics because of that. But basically... Yeah, if you want to get into I was going to say Barnes and Noble or Borders, I don't know how many of those are around anymore today, but if you want to be able to sell comics on Amazon, well they do own Comicsology so you could buy digital single issues, but if you want to get those books out, write a story that's five, four, five, six issues long, put it together in a graphic novel, and now you have something to sell to bookstores to sell to customers.
2: The reason why I find it interesting when I wanted to ask you more about it was because the way you describe it really sounds like they do now with shows. They put out ten episodes, but there's always two or three episodes that you're like, they could have shortened this. There's always some fat that you could be trimming off of the, the page here, just like you could be trimming a lot of fat off of some of the shows that we watch.
1: Yeah, and I guess here's basically the story of John Carpenter's Snake pluskin Chronicles. Snake gets hired for a job. He's going to steal the car that JFK was assassinated in, which, okay, this is great. It's hitting all my sweet spots for just crazy sci fi dystopian cyberpunk that I love. And of course, that heist goes wrong. He gets betrayed and he joins some other people, and there's a big fight, and he gets the car and sells it, even though it's full of bullet holes. It opens up with a big, long action sequence, which I guess is fun, but because it doesn't really play out to anything later on, I ended up liking a lot of it and liking the art more than I thought I would when I glanced through it. But yeah, I, I do feel like edit it down, tighten it up.
2: I felt like a lot of this book, these four books together, I felt this could have been a discarded screenplay, a Snake Plissken adventure that they didn't want to put on film. Throughout the book, there are these descriptive paragraphs that tell you what's going on. Jacob, you know what I'm talking about.
1: These these little caption boxes where they tell you people's motivations and get in their heads, except it's third person omniscience. So at first it's like, Snake Plissken was worried about this deal. I'm like, is he talking, is he referring to himself in the third person or are they just referring to everyone like that? You don't do that. It's usually, look, I'm sure there's comics where they do do that, but that is not the norm. The norm is to have that be someone's thoughts coming from someone's point of view. And that's
2: why it sounds like it was pulled from a script. Like it was the descriptive language that was between the dialogue. The interior of the bar is even less welcoming than its exterior. But then Snake is really never welcomed anywhere.
1: Yeah, does Snake think that? Or is that just the narrator telling us, whoever this narrator is? I will say this, to piggyback on what you said, you
2: can follow the action on the page here. The storytelling is very clear. Despite some of that clunky, should-be inner monologue dialogue, you know exactly where Snake is going, who he's talking to. And they make a real effort to connect this to familiar elements of the Escape from New York, Escape from L.A. universe. You liked the art, Jacob. I thought the art was fine. I had a little bit of an issue with the way Snake was drawn. He looked a little different from Russell maybe in the nose but every scene it's like his face is scrunched it's let's put on our mean faces he's always got a grimace on his face
1: yeah <laughs> i always do wonder did they have the rights to use kurt russell's face or you got to get the likeness rights for everything and not just the rights to the story but sometimes the actors have to sign their rights away so yeah i always do wonder when they really go off model from an actor did they not have the rights it's closer than we'll get in some of these other comics it's it's all right here it's not really my art style, but that's very subjective. Again, it feels like a norm for a comic book. It's, it's not the coolest style. Again, I don't know who this artist is. It didn't look like he had done a whole lot when I try to look into his career, but it works more or less. And again, he's do, they're doing this decompressed storytelling, which means you have to pay a lot more attention to detail and, and because you're trying to hit these smaller beats. And I think he does pretty okay with that. There's this motorcycle chase going on with. Snake in a Humvee Jeep type of thing and you know you get a shot of this motorcycle gang and then this long shot of the motorcycles chasing the car then a close up on Snake and then back to that long shot but the motorcycles are a little bit closer so I feel like this artist does do pretty good visual storytelling which is very tough like I've, I've drawn comics and trying to get that visual storytelling down it's just as hard as writing dialogue and scenes.
2: And CrossGen Comics they had plans to expand the creators of this book they had a plan to put out a series of four issue story arcs in bi-monthly format and they want to do specials and they want to do one shots they talk about plans for an anime feature with kurt russell coming back to voice snake bliskin and a video game that was never published but they they really wanted to build a new escape from new york world
1: in comics and i think we're gonna have to wait another 10 years but our listeners will only have to wait a week to hear that because we're gonna get into that expansion with boom studios and their escape from new york series
2: that's right five graphic novels starting next
1: week with escape from florida So listeners, for at least the next few weeks, there's no escape from Books and
0: Nachos. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you for listening to this episode of Books and Nachos. You can also find many more book reviews at our website, booksandnachos.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, please help spread the word about our podcast by leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. Books and Nachos is a crowdsourced podcast with no sponsors or ads. You could support our show by pledging to our Bean campaign at booksandnachos.com slash support. The music for Books and Nachos is The Right Prescription by Chai Weapon, provided by podsafeaudio.com. Books and Nachos is a Vinganza Media production, copyright 2020, all rights reserved. And no part of the show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Vinganza Media Incorporated.